You can't make a living in music. You can make a killing, but you can't make a living. Next I See Fellas was first single of 1976, went gold just a few months ago. And even as I stand here running my jaws, their second one is making its way steadily up to the top of the charts. Great way to start a new year for England Dand and John Ford Coley. It's John Lamoureux. I love Yacht Rock. The soft sounds of the 70s. This week we are talking to one of the titans of that type of music, Mr. John Ford Coley. Now in the 70s, as most people know, he formed a partnership with England Dan and they went around as England Dan and John Ford Coley. They had probably half a dozen hits at the time, including this one, which is the most enduring of all of them. I'd really love to see you tonight. One of the most respectful, softest, sweetest booty calls of all time. Their partnership started to kind of come apart around the beginning of the 80s. The guys broke up. I think they remained sort of friendly. Uh, John went off to do his thing, and he talks about all that in here. England Dan, or Dan Seals, became a country singer. And unfortunately, he passed away about 10 years ago. But John continues on, and he is one of these people. I've talked about this before on here. Thank goodness somebody, somewhere, and I don't remember who it is, decided to make that soft rock sound of the 70s and 80s fun by calling it Yacht Rock. I'm a firm, firm believer in this. You put people like John Ford Coley or Christopher Cross or Ambrosia or Orleans, you put those bands on a tour right now and maybe they have some success, but you put a bunch of them together, you call it something fun like Yacht Rock, you give everybody a bunch of sailor hats and suddenly you have a really fun, good time. It doesn't feel old anymore, it feels fun, it feels lively. And I believe he's benefiting from that. John and I get into all of the details of his career, what he's been doing, his most recent album. He's on so many different Yacht Rock kind of package tours with Peter Beckett of Player or our old friend Walter Egan or whoever. Check it out because if you love this kind of music, there's a lot to be discovered here. He called me from his home in Nashville. So you probably don't remember this, but about three years ago, I emailed you asking if you would come on this show. And I didn't hear back for probably a year. And then finally, out of the blue, sent me this email saying, yes, let's do it. But I'm going, to, I think you were going to Europe on a tour. And you said, I'll be back. I think this was in like May. And you said, I'll be back in July. Let's do it in July. And I followed up and I followed up and I followed up and I never heard anything again. And I finally let it go. And so here we are. I've been trying to make this happen for about three years now, John. 
Okay, well, I don't want to talk about that. So I'm kidding. <laughs> no, so I want you to know that there's been some built-up anticipation on my end. I've been excited to do this. Okay, well, good. I, I hope it's worth your time, man. I'm sure it will be. I'm sure. <laughs> now you just put pressure on me, man. <laughs> no, not at all. Okay, the main thing I want to know is what are you doing these days, John? I know you put out a new album called Eclectic a couple of years ago. We're going to talk about that. And I believe you tour a lot. How often do you tour? How are you making a career, maintaining a career these days? I probably travel about 40, 50 days a year. I mean, by and large, it's weekends now. We used to go out for three months or, or two months and, and hit all the radio stations. I don't have to do that any longer. I can just kind of go out on weekends. And occasionally, I might play a Wednesday or Thursday, but by and large, it's just Friday or Saturday mm -hmm. nights. Mm-hmm. Would you say you're gone just about every weekend somewhere? No, probably about three times a month. Okay. At this stage of the game, I'm not trying to kill it, you know, because we're not trying to get radio and and yeah. um, kind of pull the old, uh, you know, the, the slot machine handle and get on the radio again. I mean, you know, I don't have to worry about that kind of thing. I just kind of go out and play. As a matter of fact, when I go out now, I, as opposed to being in a town for, you know, 20 hours, and then hitting the next day and gone. I actually had time to go in the day before, or I could stay after if I want to, especially if there's historical content in the town mm. or someplace I'd really like to see. Do you usually play on your own? Or are you playing with package tours with other sort of soft rock of the 70s type people? I do actually a bunch of different kinds of things. I mean, I enjoy playing the package deals, play a lot with Ambrosia or, or Player or Orleans. Um, you know, good, really good groups like that that have backing bands. I prefer to play by myself most of the time, mm. just piano and guitar, just simply because if somebody says, hey, play, can, can you play such and such? I can go, sure. Yeah. If I'm playing with a band, I have to follow a set list. But if I play by myself, I just kind of play what I want to play. Right. And um, I mean, by and large, when I go out now, I, I've done the rock thing. I, I've been in the big arenas. I've seen all those kinds of avenues. And I prefer the smaller places and just kind of sit and joke and laugh and, uh -huh. and tell stories. And, and, you know, it's kind of a more of an intimate evening. And that, to me, is much more enjoyable. Periodically, I'll play with the band. Like when I go up to Sellersville this weekend, I'm playing with a band called The Criers. Oh. And they're backing me up on some things. Okay. And, uh that that's fun too, but I just I like the spontaneity of being able to just have something come into my head and go, oh, I haven't played that for a long time, you know. Yeah. And I don't turn around and look at the band and go, guys, can you sit these next six songs out? And just go. <laughs> cool. Okay. Now, when you're playing these shows, are you are you often the headliner? Or are you able to put out you know put on like an hour, hour and a half? long show or are you kind of coming in doing six or seven songs and then getting off the stage if i play with the package i'll play about three or four songs okay uh and mainly it's just the hits uh if i play by myself i mean i i, I used to play with terry sylvester sometimes he was in the hollies and we would kind of do a duo thing he was accustomed to playing 45 minutes tops i was accustomed to playing an hour and a half to two hours mm. you know and not even batting an eye and he'd come off the stage and go john we played almost two hours, and I go, yeah. He goes, well, I can't do that, <laughs> you know. So it was, it was, um, 
it was funny for me. The only thing that's been interesting now is that because the audience has gotten older, I'll stay up there and I'll just continue to play, you know, for the for the entire time that I'm scheduled for. An hour and a half, two hours. The drawback is that the audience is now only have 45-minute kidneys, you know? So we've got to take a break. And when we take a break, I'm trying to figure out where I'm going to break the thing yet and be able to pick it back up with the same amount of enthusiasm, you know, and momentum that I had before. So, uh, I mean, I don't need the break. I just play. Man, what a luxury to be you at this age and that there's still a demand for John Ford Coley to come play in someone's town. I mean, would you have ever guessed, you know, 45 years ago? Yeah, that, that's surprising to me to a large degree. But then again, though, there's an audience still out there that enjoys coming out. I truly enjoy playing. I've, I've not gotten tired of it at all. I look forward to it. Uh, I mean, even around the house, I, I play constantly. Something I've been curious about with you is when... England Dan and John Ford Coley came to an end around 81 or so. You didn't make music, at least you didn't put out a new album, other than the one you made with your sisters, which is a lot of fun, by the way. It's a beautiful album. Well, first of all, those those two girls were not my sisters. Oh, I thought I read somewhere that they were. Yeah, no, they, they weren't, not at all. Uh, we had kind of a deal that we were doing, and um, I was uh, kind of engaged to one of them at one point. That was a oh. real interesting uh, experience. I think it's what do they call another useless experience? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> do you think of me? Do you feel the cold? Or is somebody keeping you warm like I used to do? I wish that you knew that I want you back here. I'm sorry I had that wrong. I could have sworn I read they were your sisters. Yeah, this is very different. So that making that album was not uh, a very pleasurable experience, I'm guessing? No. The thing is, is that it was kind of, um, it, was difficult. it was different. I mean, I really liked the sound of the things that we had. And we had some very good uh, songs, I thought. But I mean, you know, it's different just working in that environment. I'm, I was so accustomed to working with guys and, and if guys have difficulties, we can walk out back and talk about it, you know. And and uh, you, you couldn't really do that. And the drawback is that when you were with someone and then you're in the middle of writing or you're recording or doing whatever and, and the, the uh, 5 o'clock whistle blows, I mean, it doesn't end there. You can't leave it there. You go, you go back to it. And it just continues all the time. So it's, it's a very difficult situation to be involved with someone that you're working with. 
Well, other than that, then, and I should say, I keep skipping the name. It, it was called Leslie Kelly and John right. Ford Coley, sort of a play on England, Dan and John Ford Coley. Now it's these two women and John Ford Coley. Other than that, after that, what did you do? How did you maintain a living after that? Man, I did a lot of different things. Um, it just wasn't in the public eye. So I was continuing to write all that time. But again, when the career had gone, the career had gone. Dan and I split that thing, and we never we never looked back. Dan went off into country, and then I eventually went over into music and film, as well as going into acting. I got kind of a, a call to come out and, and play a film, play a drummer in a film. Alex Rocco, the guy that was... Yeah, uh, Mo, yeah Mo, Mo Green in, in Godfather. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Alex was a good buddy. So his son, stepson, actually was doing a film, and he was calling all the favors that he could to get his son, you know, have the people in here, Joy Pantoliano, going on The Sopranos, and Steve Railsbat, played Charles Manson and Helter Skelter. Uh, Timothy B. Schmidt ended up playing, and I played the drums. What movie is this again? It's a thing called Scenes from the Gold Mine. I saw that movie on TV years ago. I didn't realize you were in that. Yeah, I, I played the drummer. Okay. And uh, I mean, it was very interesting because, again, I didn't know anything about drums. I'm not a, I'm not a drummer. I'm a guitar player, you know, piano player. And so then they gave me the songs, and I had to learn these songs from top to bottom. And uh, I mean, but, but that was just that was just such a fun experience for me to go in and, and acting it was kind of natural at it that's great i don't even know was that your one credit or were the, did you think you're starting a whole new career now in the movie business well i actually did about about six films did you really okay it's a lot of fun i enjoyed acting you know i met wow. some incredible people one of the stories that i tell is that on the scenes in the gold mine film, the thing that I learned that I didn't know happened is you have day players. So they come in one, two, three days, and then they do their parts and they're gone. Well, they had Bruce Springsteen's sister, Pamela Springsteen, yeah. and she was supposed to be in the band, and we, we throw her out, but she doesn't know we throw her out, so she's throwing a hissy fit. And, and uh, so when she came in the first day, Pam and I, man, we got along like brother and sister. It was just like really? such a great experience. And then she's working really hard. She's studying. She's acting. She's trying to do everything she can to get out from under Bruce's shadow and kind of make a name for herself. And so we, we just we had great talks and got along so well. Well, the next day she comes in, comes right up to me, and she goes, John, I talked to my brother Bruce last night about you. He said he knows your music. He loves your music, no and he thought maybe you and he could get together and, and maybe write or, uh, you know, put, play together sometime. And he said for me to give you his number. And I said, really? And she said, no, I was just acting. But tell me, did you believe me? Because I've been working really hard at this. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. At that point, we did get along like brother and sisters, you know. Oh, that's crazy. Man, that would hurt. That'd be a kick in the nuts right there. <laughs> oh, I, well, the, the other one that was very difficult was on that very same film. There was a young girl, and she'd written a couple of songs for the film. Really nice, really nice girl. We got along very well. And at one point, she said, well, you know, would you maybe like to get together sometime and, and maybe write? And I said, gosh, 
I, you know, I'm not really doing anything right now, and I, and I normally kind of write for projects and stuff. You know, maybe later on when something's kind of going on. And so she said, well, okay. She was very nice about it. Six months later, Melissa Etheridge is taking home Grammys. No way. And I'm sitting there going, John, you're the biggest moron. Don't ever say no again. <laughs> oh, man. It was right there. You could have worked with Melissa. Oh, man. Right there. Wow, that's great. Okay, so I want to go back to the beginning a little bit because I think Nights Are Forever is almost a perfect album. I love, love that album. In fact, my, maybe my favorite England Dan and John Ford Coley song is Don't Feel That Way No More. I love it. I held her hands in the night I told her everything would be all right I searched her eyes for a sign To see if she was shining her love light Then she said, I just don't feel that way no more And the way to my heart is a closed door you can't revive what ain't alive, that's for sure And I could not lead you on anymore So when you guys came together uh, in Texas, I think even in like the late 60s, coming, you were sort of a partnership in Texas before relocating to L.A., trying to make it big, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you go way back. That's what I thought. How did you guys stumble on the fact that you sounded so great together and worked so well together. How did you stumble on this chemistry? When I got into the band, they had a guitar player that quit, and everybody else wanted to have a keyboard player come in, and Dan wanted another guitar player. So we did not get along at all. Mm. And so then we, then we would end up writing to uh, various gigs together, because again, we played quite a bit as a high school band, but we played it almost every weekend. And um, so Dan and I would end up writing to the to the shows together, and we would just kind of sing, and we we brothers and righteous brothers, and and songs of that of that caliber. And we discovered that we had kind of a natural blend. Dan would always take lead, I'd always take the harmony, and um, it just kind of developed from there. And, and that's pretty much how it came about. Hmm. Now, who is Parker McGee? Because he's the guy who wrote I'd Really Love to See You Tonight, and I think he co-wrote a few other songs on that album. How, who is he? How did he get in, involved in all this? Uh, Kyle Kenny, who was the producer on the Nights of Forever album, actually was a friend of his, and um, he had some songs. So somehow we ended up with uh, Really Love to See You Tonight, which Dan and I, neither one, wanted to do because we thought it was a female song. Oh. But they kind of kept pushing us on it. And um, so we did, and it just kind of took off. Huh. Wow. And you didn't like that song? You didn't think that was going to be a hit? It's not that I didn't think it was going to be a hit. I thought that it was just more of a female song, number one. But number two, Dan and I were accustomed to writing all of our own music. And so to have somebody else kind of come in, it was it was kind of irritating until we saw the first royalty check. Yeah. And then after I saw the royalty <laughs> check... I'm looking at Parker going, Parker, buddy, hey, what else you got? <laughs> That's always how it works. And he, since he wrote that song, he gets the lion's share of the royalty, I'm guessing, at this point. 
Well, actually, he, he got it all, uh, oh. with the exception of who published it. But, I mean, you know, Parker was a good writer. And and the thing that, that uh, happened with Parker was he was writing all these great songs that he he wanted to be a recording artist himself. Yeah. And so it, he started keeping them back, and he tried to do it, and it didn't work. And later, years, years later, about 1983, I was working with Bill Champlin. And uh, Bill, you know, ended up going into Chicago, playing all those all those uh, uh, hits with with Chicago, and uh, he had written with David Foster and Jay Graydon a song called "After the Love Is Gone," mm-hmm. and he said the biggest mistake he ever made was they came back and then he had a couple of other songs that they liked, and they said we want these songs, and he goes, "Nah, you know, I think I'm going to do them myself," and he said. Well, they went on to sell millions and millions of records, and he went on to go in there and wash dishes, you know, in his house. Yeah. Because uh, it just didn't it didn't fly. Yeah. And he said, so when somebody asked me if I want a song, yep, I'll take it. Really? Yeah. That's a good rule of thumb. You never know. I mean, it's better to open yourself up to the opportunity or the potential for success at every turn, right? Yeah, because you can always go and do it later on if you yeah. want to. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've heard a couple of stories like that. Okay, so then also on the first album, Nights Are Forever Without You, that's also a top ten hit. Lying in bed with the radio on Moonlight falls like rain Soft summer nights spent thinking of you Will I see you again? Soft and low, the music moans. I can't stop thinking about you. Thinking about you. guys had been struggling for a while, bouncing around on labels, putting out albums people weren't paying any attention to. How did your life change? Aside from that royalty check, do you remember a moment when you were like, suddenly you could afford to eat at a nicer restaurant or the limos that the label was sending to pick you up were getting nicer or bigger? Were the girls getting better looking? How did your life change as success starts to find you? You know, I think that Dan and I, first of all, we both were of the mentality that we weren't looking to be stars. We were just kind of looking to, to be able to continue to play and feed our families. So if you had a song that got on the radio, you looked at it as, okay, we can continue to go out and play for a while. Yeah. It just, the, the other thing never really hit me. As a matter of fact, you know, one, the, the, there's a reality check that comes into it at a certain point. And I know that We'd gotten our first old record for the single. But I was walking down the streets of Toronto, Canada, and we got news that the Nights of Forever album had gone gold. 
And I was walking down Young and Brewer, I just remember it so vividly, and I'm saying to myself, I've got a gold record. Yeah. i got a gold record. Yeah. And then I, I just kind of sat there, and I went, why don't I feel anything? Mm. I mean, what is, this is what you're supposed to be really shooting for, the epitome of, of this goal that you've set for yourself. And it was like, okay, the goal has been met. Now what the hell do you do? Yeah. And so you have to kind of refocus and put yourself back around. And I was really surprised at how little joy it brought at that point, because now you've recognized, uh, this is something I've, I've striven for, yeah. if that's a word, and and it's been realized. And now, for, how, where do we go from here? Did you ever learn that lesson? What, uh, I mean, th you know, people have been talking about this for years. Where did you go to find greater satisfaction if it wasn't through your work? Yeah, well, that, that's the deal, is that you just continue to go on. Yeah. And you recognize where's the enjoyment really coming from and what am I really doing this for? I mean, you know, you can get reflective on it in, in this, at this stage of the game. But again, when you're stuck in the middle of it, you just kind of, you know, bear down and continue to go on and, and try to set new goals. But it, you recognize it's a very ephemeral business. You're up today, you're down tomorrow. And you still continue to go on. And then that reality really became real when Dan and I split. And you, you can't, you know, achieve that same level of, of success that you were looking for. Right. And you realize that this thing does have a life and a death in it. I don't know if you were realizing these things at the moment, but is that what sort of, could that have been something that was feeding the follow-up album? Because, you know, Dowdy Ferry Road has a little bit of a darker, more somber tone to it. And for guys who had just come off this beautiful, perfect debut album with these great, beautiful love songs on them, to have this sort of, you know, a little more somber, a little more insular follow-up album, what was going on? Was success really hard? Was it? Is it realizing that it's not it's all crapped up to be? What's, what's feeding this? No, success for me was not hard. I didn't have any difficulty with it because fortunately enough, I mean, the, the greatest gift that we ever got was touring with people like Brett and Elton John and mm -hmm. Chicago and, and, and Carol King and all of these people. So when you're on the road with those guys and they're actually teaching you how to live, I mean, you, you, you have an entirely different way of looking at it. So you're not trying to be a star again. You're just trying to, to go from point A to point B. Yeah. And I mean, it, it wasn't darker for me or, or anything like that. It was just, okay, we're just, we're just going to continue to go on here. And the, one of the things that's very interesting about the music industry, and a lot of people, especially if you're not in it, it's not, gonna, it's not going to mean anything to you. But in the first record, that's a bear. That's tough. I mean, yeah. that, that's, that's tough. Getting the second one is much easier because you've had the first one. Now, you're pretty much guaranteed that one. Getting the third record on the radio. Met you on a springtime day. You were minding your life and I was minding mine too. It's actually harder than the first because you've proved that you're fluke. Now let's see if you can prove that you're real. Mm. That it's sad to belong to someone else when the right one comes along. 
Because again, they know, okay, you're not a fly by night. You can stick around. You've obviously got something. So, you know, I didn't have to worry so much about those things. Um, We were just enjoying ourselves at that point. So when the next album comes out, Some Things Don't Come Easy, that's also a great album. Calling For You Again is, uh, that's another one of my favorite songs of yours. Here I go. There's definitely sort of a course correction there with some things don't come easy. Things start, it's a little brighter. There's there's more, uh, things sound a little peppier. Are you in a better mood? Are you feeling more settled in your career? What's bringing this on? You know, I don't even think we thought about it like that. We were just the best songs, um, or the best songs that we could possibly come up with. So at that point, I would come home. I would ride on the road. I'd ride at home when I got home. Just immediately either connect up with Dan by myself or with, or with somebody else and just get as many things as I could possibly get out there. Dan didn't do that. Dan kind of came home and and he just relaxed. Mm-hmm. You know, he'd go fishing and, and do things like that. So I actually wrote a whole lot more than what Dan did and had more songs on the record. A lot of them I thought were pretty good. Some of them I didn't really think, you know, as I look back at them now, I kind of go, we should have done that one. But, uh, you know, there, there, there was still, again, I was looking, I was, I was enjoying myself. I was yeah. having a good time. You know, we, we had gained a certain amount of notoriety. Uh, people seemed to respect us. We had good crowds coming out to see us play. We were being asked to come back to play a lot of places, which is, it's always a good sign. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you just you just try to figure, well, maybe we can make this thing last a little bit longer than the, the average two years. These personality differences that you mentioned between you and Dan, is that what ultimately leads to the breakup? Because after Deckel, Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive, and again, Love is the Answer is a big hit. I love that song. I'm going to ask you more about that in a minute. You guys are, you know, you're still on the radar. You maybe... You know, you're not seeing the same level of success as with the first album, but it's still there. People are, you're still having hits, getting played on the radio. Why, why call that off? Well, the thing is, is we have a lot of things that start to work against you. And um, number one is that we, like Love is the Answer was the only song that I recall, besides maybe after the love is gone, that was in the top 10 in 1979 that was not disco. Uh-huh. I mean, we, 
we were fighting that thing hook, tooth, and nail and yeah. trying not to become involved in it. And the record company would love that you could have jumped into that frame, but yeah. <laughs> it wasn't something that I felt called to at all. Right. And uh, so then, then you've got that element. Then you've got um, uh, record company pressure because, again, they're not seeing the same kind of results that they saw before. Um, the, the Dr. Echo and Mr. Jive album, they thought, I mean, I, I, I finally threw it away, but uh, from Dick Vanderbilt, who was one of the presidents of the company, Big Tree, wrote and said, I declare this thing is, is gold before it's even released, mm-hmm. right? Well, it didn't really work out that way because yeah. they thought that it was a great album. I thought it was my favorite album. Mm. But the people, because of the other things that were going on, they just didn't... Um, uh, gravitate to it as far as we thought that they would. You see, the thing with Dan and I that, that most people don't realize is that we were both musicians. So when we started off together, we're playing the pop songs, and we, we eventually graduated to this style. Then we graduated to the soul era, then the then the psychedelic rock, and I mean, we pretty much ended up playing fusion jazz. Yeah. So people could not figure out what we were musically. Well, as we, as we continued, especially me, I'm getting more and more progressive, classical, rock kind of oriented. Dan's going more country. And when Dan's going more country, I mean, you've got a you've got quite a dichotomy there. Yeah. And then you've got people that begin to weed themselves into your career. Mm. And they, they kind of can become divisive. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're, you're the lead singer, and you're the important one here. You know, I mean, I've seen it happen so many times sure. in so many different groups. And so you began to succumb to that. Yeah. Well, you know, one wants to go one way, the other one wants to go another way. And then what happened, truthfully, I mean, Dan and I were kind of, kind of on the outs on that thing. But there was one song that the record company wanted us to do. And it was a song called Stones. And the lyric went, if you've got a woman and you want her to love you, then you've got to buy her stones, bright shining stones. And I said, I'm not doing that. Stones, bright shining stones. And it goes on and on and on. You got a woman. You want to please her. that's just a major league put down on women. No, I'm not doing that. Well, they really thought that song was going to be a big hit. Huh. And uh, they put me on suspension. Really? Yeah, and I said, I'm not doing it. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to have to live with that yeah. kind of a deal. And uh, that's pretty much what actually broke the group up. Oh, man. Dan went on to record Stones, yeah, which was good for him because, again, he kind of, he, Dan, Dan really needed to kind of go solo anyway. We, we kind of needed a break. We could have come back later on maybe, but you kind of get stale at a certain point. You, you've done this, you've done that. I mean, what's left for you to do? Sure. So... Um, it was good for him to take that adventure. It was it was 
harder for me. Again, you know, I, I I'm on suspension, which means that I can't record. Yeah. Until until they break the the contract. Um, tell me, did you ever come face to face with Todd Rundgren for Love is the Answer? As a matter of fact, that man still holds the record of the best concert that I've ever been to. Really? He played at a club down in um, uh, San Diego called the Bacchanal. And it was just him by himself, sometimes piano, sometimes guitar, sometimes, you know, he had a recording machine and sometimes acapella. I could not wait for him to stop playing and get off the stage. Because the only thing that I wanted to do from listening to him was go home and play my guitar. Really? I don't think I had ever been that inspired in my life. What year was this concert with Todd? It was about 1986, 87. Really? That is so interesting you say that because I, I'm fairly new to Todd. I've always known the name, but I hadn't paid close attention to his music until just a few years ago, and I was really liking what I heard. And he came, I live in Denver, and he came through town, this is probably mm, three or four years ago, and it was, I think it was billed as, an, as a spontaneous night with Todd Rundgren or something like that. And it was probably the worst concert I've ever been to. And it's because, oh, because he, he, barely played any songs he would just sort of make stuff up and he would sing like ditties or or theme songs to old tv shows from when he was a kid or he would just make stuff up and then he would just sort of toss off one of the hits very like without caring much or without a lot of uh heart involved he was more into like entertaining the crowd with goofiness than he was playing his songs now i was the youngest guy there and i could tell that everyone else there was just loving this and but me wanting to like have a full todd experience for the first time in my life it was so frustrating so it's interesting that you say that i think you have to be a real devoted fan to uh to want all sides of todd rundgren you know what i mean well, the thing is, he's very eccentric. I mean, yes. there's, there's, he's left of center on so many different levels. But I mean, the man to me was just, he was a musical giant. He was a genius. Yeah, and he is. And a lot of the chord progressions that he would use. And I mean, you know, still one of my favorite CDs is, is one called Healing that he did. Mm. And I mean, 
The guy, the guy definitely had a gift. That's yeah, true. he does. So one thing I wanted to ask you about, and uh, you can be as honest and open about this as you want. Everything I read about you focuses heavily on your faith. That I think you and Dan grew up probably as devout Christians. I think maybe you both, or at least you, became a member of the Baha'i faith for a while. That's something I'm kind of curious about. I'm wondering what that means exactly. And then went back to like more mainstream Christianity or whatever. How has your faith, whether that be Christianity or through the Baha'i faith, how has that influenced you as a person and informed what you what you do? Well, first of all, I haven't been involved in the Baha'i religion for over 20 years. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I, I left that thing and said goodbye, no thank you. Mm. And um, but, but I was raised, you know, as a believer, a Christian. And, um, I mean, it's always been a guiding influence in my life. I, I study spirituality and, and uh, teachings all the time. I, um, I, I, I'm a believer but I study in the synagogues all the time. Mm. So kind of going back to the foundational and, and being able to gather at the foundation so that you can understand what the rest of it is a real indication of. Mm-hmm. So it's been quite an, an experience, but it's again, it's something that, um, it's not something that I, I really push or talk about a lot oh, because okay. I've always, no, no, I mean, I'll talk about it all day long. You start me on it and you'll, you'll be asking me to stop. <laughs> but, uh, but the thing is, is that it, it's a guiding, it's a guiding force. You yeah. know, it, it's the thing that kind of holds me together in so many different ways. I don't put it in my music. And as a matter of fact, I don't really talk about it a whole lot because I'm one of those type of people that, and again, I've had people, you know, that, that will come up and try to convert me or stuff things down my throat. And I'm one of those type of people that I really don't care what you believe or what you espouse or, or, or you know, anything of that nature try to shove down my throat. I'm going to watch how you behave. Yeah. That's all I need to know as to whether I'm even interested in anything you've got to say. Because I've seen so much of it. And I've been very disenchanted and disillusioned with what I've seen because it's one thing to say something, something else to live it. I find the spiritual, the inner spiritual life of rock stars very fascinating because I'm somebody who sometimes I feel like I have a lot of faith and sometimes I really struggle. And um, sometimes I feel like I know some things for sure. And sometimes I feel like I don't know anything. And um <laughs> But it's but rock stars are always rock stars. They're always up on stage and they sort of rep their icons of a particular way of life and a particular, uh, I don't know, indulgence or, you know, the 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 animal side of of life or of our of a human being's nature. And so I find it interesting what is going on spiritually inside of them, because you think of a rock star as one thing, but to think of them as spiritual beings who are who have a lot of faith or who are questioning or searching, that seems counterintuitive to a rock star up on a stage, you know, being a being a god with their guitars or whatever. So I just find that really fascinating. If you get into the spiritual aspects of it, I mean, music is very spiritual. You can take it and, and make it as, as debased as you want to, especially lyrically. But it's that guiding force 
that causes you to get up in the morning and look for something good. I mean, you know, I, I have people all the time say, love is the answer. Music is the answer. If we get out of here and we do this this kind of a deal, and I go, man, have you ever been around musicians? We're some of the most volatile, angry, ticked <laughs> off, bust you in the nose yeah. quicker than you've ever seen. You know, if you want to call that spiritual, knock yourself out. But, I mean, I know what I used to be like. And um, it's it's just, it, it's a way of life. It's it's how you look at things. I mean, when I get up on stage, I don't ever talk about that. I don't ever talk okay. about politics. You know, no, it's just because because what happens is that it's, it's a divisive tool. Yeah. And and everybody's got a different opinion. You know, it's like when you get up on stage and you start po- talking politics. Look, you've got Republicans out there. You've yeah. got Democrats. You say yes, no, up, down, left, right, backwards, forward. You're going to make somebody angry. Just play music. They didn't come there to hear that. They came to hear music and go down memory lane. So that's that's what I do. If someone wants to talk to me about it later on, hey, I'll be glad and more than happy to talk to you. Okay. But believe me, I'm not what you think I am. And I keep a very little profile when I go out with musician friends of mine because by and large, they're all very liberal left-leaning people. Getting ready to talk to you, I've known the music for years, but I've been kind of researching you as a person. And a lot of the articles I read are like, you know, famous Christian rock stars or Wikipedia will talk about your conversion to Christianity or to the Baha'i faith or whatever. And it was making me think that maybe that was a really big thing for you. Like you were almost a Christian artist. I've never seen you live, so I don't know if you're up there proselytizing or you're just showing a good time sounds like you are i think that's the right move by the way but i was just curious as a matter of fact when i first started going to church again and it was really interesting because there was a guy by the name of paul overstreet paul was a big writer in country and so i had written a you know a couple of songs we met him a couple of times and, and at one point he kept trying to get me to go to church hmm. and i finally looked at him one day and i said paul tell you what if i go to church with you well, you shut the hell up. And, leave me alone. <laughs> and he said, yeah. And I said, okay. So I went, you know. But the thing is, is um, when he talks about Christian artists, I mean, I get, I get kind of a kick out of that, you know, mm. because it's like, well, that, that's an awfully big title, yeah. you know, because, that, that, because you're, you're, you're setting yourself up. Mm-hmm. For a great big fall, because there's a lot of people. I remember when I, when I would go into some of these places, they were all angry at uh, Amy Grant. She sold out. Yeah. You know, she's not just doing thing anymore. I said, hey, Mitchell, she, she went to making millions of dollars as opposed to a dollar ninety-eight. You're mad about that? Yeah. It's like, come on, guys, leave yeah. it alone. She's an artist. I'm not that kind of an artist. I don't play those kinds of songs. It might have spiritual meaning in some of the songs, but as far as trying to proselytize or shove this down somebody's throat, no, it's not going to happen for me. I'm a secular artist. Yeah. I mean, you know, as a matter of fact, they were talking about one time about um, being, you know, the possibility, because I've got some songs that, again, have the spiritual side to them. They said, you know, you could get these and, and possibly be on the devil wards. And I said, I don't, believe, I don't believe in the devil wards. I mean, if you're making music and you're calling it Christian music and you're making it for anyone other than God, 
then I'm sorry. What are you winning awards for on this kind of stuff? That's kind of, you know, <laughs> usurping God, isn't it? Yeah, that's a good, healthy attitude. I like that. Okay, so lastly, I want to ask you about Eclectic. Uh, I think it was 2016, you put out a solo album that's got like 26 tracks on it. And it's called Eclectic because everything, it covers a wide scope of different sounds and genres. One song in particular that I really like off the album is Till the Light Turns Green. And yeah. um, I like that one too because it features Georgia Middleman. She's great. How did you get connected up with her? Georgia is an absolute sweetheart. Good. I absolutely adore that girl. Uh, she um, Actually, I had seen her. She was on Giant Records playing Tin Pan South. And I just happened to go down there, and I saw her, and I went, I really like this girl. And we ended up, you know, I met her, and we ended up becoming friends. We ended up playing a lot of things with Byron Hill. We played songwriting around. She was always first call. Um, and and so the um, she was singing a song with me when we play songwriter in the rounds. It was kind of a duet in that way. And so when it came time to record the thing, immediately called Georgia. Someone like you is waiting for me to come home at night and see all that you need. All of these thoughts just go. I miss George. George is an absolute sweetheart. Isn't she a member of the, um, are they called the Blue Sky Riders with Kenny Loggins? Yeah, and her husband, Gary Burr. Now, Gary, her husband, had written just a truckload of country songs. Great, uh, yeah. you know, great country songs. And they ended up getting married a couple of years ago. I just saw her at the airport about three months ago. And, and you know, it's, it's kind of, that's how it works now, you know, we just kind of, Meet one <laughs> I like that album a lot and I especially like that song and I think you two together sound wonderful and so I want to make sure I mentioned it. Are you are you happy with it? Are you able to sell this at concerts? Are you satisfied with the how it's you know, how it's being received? That's what I do. And you know, the thing is is that I have people come up and say, you know, I've got a great hit song for you this thing be guaranteed uh kind kind of an interest back into the uh into the radio format, and I'd say, guys, come on, let's let's just call space space here. This isn't going to happen. They're not playing a bunch of people that should be on the radio because they're all looking for the new stuff. So I'm going to do the songs that I like. I've written all these songs all these years because, again, you know, people kind of think, well, you're you're not in the public eye, so you've obviously just kind of given up, and you're, you know, you're you're putting singing tiles in somewhere, yeah. and. <laughs> You actually end up with your fingers in it all the time. So there's all these songs all these years that I've just kept and never plan on doing anything with them. You just write because you just write. And so then I thought, I really want to do these songs. Actually, we're going to make it like a, uh, a, a double uh, CD with just acoustic. 
And then, you know, some of these songs kind of took off on Life on the Own, ran into Tony Coleman, used to be uh, um, B.B. King's drummer. Mm -hmm. Uh, He came in and just made the thing lively. Uh, Tom Ward, the guy that I was working with on this, I'd worked with him for a long time. He'd introduced me to Vince Gill and, and, you know, T. Graham Brown, people like that. Yeah. Vince and I had known one another, you know, from years back, but we just never really made the connection. Tom just really put the connection in. So he and I wrote a song together, and he came in, he played guitar on it. Colin Ray came in and sang. Nice. Uh, you know, uh, Lydia Stella McCobra from uh, Bering Strait. That's another one that I absolutely adore. It's like a love letter to any of your fans. I mean, anyone who loves you and loves the music they know from you, especially from the 70s, here's this big platter of 26 excellent songs that they can check out to continue with the story. It's a, it's a real gift. Good for you. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing is, is I, and I say this often at a certain point in my life, God just kind of reached in and kissed me on the head. And, <laughs> and I just, I just kind of take it from that point on. You know? Yeah. And, and it's my job to sit there and make sure that I keep it up. Because what had happened to me at one point was back when I was in the band with Dan, uh, I was going to school and I was not practicing because I didn't have a piano. So I'd come in on the weekends and play and I'm not as swift as I used to be, you know. Mm-hmm. And so they were actually thinking about replacing me and the bass player. And as I was driving back up to school right after that happened, I was kind of concerned about it because I enjoyed playing, but it was becoming a burden in that way because yeah. I didn't have the instrument to take with me. And uh, as I'm driving up, this voice in my head says, I gave you the gift. What you do with it is up to you. But if you don't use it, I will take it away from you and give it to someone who will. And that scared the hell out of me. Right. First of all, I wasn't accustomed to hearing voices that loud. Right. But, uh, you know, when, when you think about that and recognize the fact, yeah, it is a gift. If you, if you don't do it, if, you, if you're using it for the wrong reasons, it's going to come back and bite you. There's, yeah. a, there's a big purpose that you've been given this gift. Why? I don't know. But I don't question it anymore either. Well, you nailed it. And uh, you've been giving the world really beautiful music for 45 years or something like that now. Dan was a great partner for the years that we worked together until the very, very end when things got a little sketchy. Yeah. Uh, good friend. We, we made a lot of great music together, wrote a lot of great songs, uh, saw a lot of the world. And uh, I recognize without any of that, it's all been orchestrated. Thanks a lot for talking with me, John. I've loved your music most of my life. And uh, I just really wanted to hear your story. So thanks for sharing it with me. Well, I hope, I hope it makes sense. It does, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it makes sense. It's great. Turn on the radio. We'll play it way down low. There's a tear in your eye that's reflecting the fire's glow. There you have it, John Ford Coley. I hope you enjoyed that. Such great music. And we are so lucky that all of these artists have a new lease on life, thanks to the Yacht Rock moniker. So many great hits. I want to close it out with another one. This is We'll Never Have to Say Goodbye Again. Such a great tune.
And I want to say a huge thank you to our man, Paul Underwood. This is a pup. This is a Paul Underwood production. We're so grateful and lucky that he gives us his talents once a month for episodes like this. Thank you, Paul. Next week's going to be an interesting one. It's one of my favorite bands ever. Last year, they were celebrating 40 years. The tour was going so well that they continued. So now it's technically 41 years. 100 million albums sold and another dysfunctional brotherhood at the core of this band. I love these guys. I understand that a lot of people have a problem with them, but they mean a lot to me. Now, you know how to find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. We were not able to get out the deep dive with Rupert Hine on the Fixes Reach the Beach last week, but Yan has assured me that he will be able to get that out by Friday so that we technically have our monthly deep dive episode out on time. So look for that later this week, okay? We love you guys. We'll talk to you later. Hey everybody, Paul Underwood here, producer for the JFC show, John Ford Coley, and I wanted to share with you a memory. We'll consider this an epilogue to the episode. Now, if you're over the age of 52, you might remember a little television show, a little coming-of-age show, if you will, called James at 16. Do you know who sang the theme song? Well... Yeah, obviously, we're talking about it because it was England Dan and John Ford Coley. In fact, they figured quite heavily in this show, even showing up to play at James's high school dance. It's a show that also featured Kim Richards, yeah, the one that's on Real Housewives now, and Deborah Winger also appeared in one of the final episodes. James at 16 went off the year mainly because... They got a little risque, and James lost his virginity to a Swedish exchange student. The show's creator wanted James to wear protection. NBC preferred he didn't, so he would be racked with guilt about possibly getting the girl pregnant. Well, the show created quite a stir, so much so that NBC was forced to yank it off the air. It resumed a few weeks later and aired the final few episodes. The show began as James at 15, and then the next year, 1978, it became James at 16. Here's the England Dan and John Ford Coley awesome show opening. Thanks for listening to The Hustle. James, a lot of questions inside, got a whole world of mind. There's a lot to discover. James got two bridges to build, your dreams to fulfill. It's all there waiting for you to find. And your friends, they'll all stand behind you. And if you forget, you know they'll remind you. James, like a river that flows, there's so much.
Portions of James at 16 are brought to you by Scope, the mouthwash that fights bad breath and leaves it smelling minty fresh, not medicine -y.